Welcome to Learning with Lisa, Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast with Lisa Navarra, award-winning educator, consultant, behavior specialist, author, and parent. This podcast provides support for school leaders, educators, and parents. We share and discuss evidence-based resources that are embedded in social and emotional learning to meet the needs of students who struggle focusing and learning. Teachers and parents find information and strategies to improve students' academic, behavioral, and social-emotional performance. It's time to turn kids from I can't into I can. Welcome to Student Success Beyond Expectations. Have you ever wondered why students with learning disabilities are falling between the cracks? And what can we do to help them? Well, to answer some of these questions, give us insight and inspiration that there are interventions that we could be doing right now and today to make a difference with these children. We bring Dr. Orly Calderon. And Dr. Calderon is an associate professor of psychology at LIU Post. She has had a private practice of her own. And she is also the supervisor in the Psychological Services Center. And if that's not enough, she has contributed and written to approximately 15 peer-reviewed journal articles. So we have a wealth of information right here, right now to share with you. Hello and welcome. Thank you, thank you, Lisa. It's wonderful to be here. So Dr. Calderon, would you please share with us what really sparked an interest of you to dive really deep to help these children and young adults as we will discover and unfold today? Um, where, where is that, what was your experience and where has it taken you today? So actually the experience started from a personal experience. Um, when I was a student myself at uh, the doctoral program at Hopson University, writing a dissertation about ADHD inspired by my son. And that started, um, started me looking really deep into the issue of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, trying to ascertain whether in fact the different presentations um, represent one cohesive disorder or different disorders. So I started to take a look at differences in cognitive functioning, emotional functioning, behavioral functioning of children with different presentations of ADHD. From there, I started to develop um, an interest in evaluation of children with ADHD and learning disabilities. In my postdoc, I was in a private practice that specialized in assessment, particularly of uh, trauma-related assessments, so not so much that topic, but a lot of emphasis on empirical psychological and systematic psychological assessment of trauma, um, traumatic brain injury. And later on, I had a private practice with a colleague who was, um, who is a social worker. And in that private practice, the model was interdisciplinary. So I would conduct psychological assessment, provide typically um, coaching for parents. Um, she would work with children who had different types of disabilities. That then led me to start doing some research. And in fact, I had a couple of articles um, based on cases from that particular practice. Um, started to do more research in the area, started to teach and teach classes in that 
in that particular topic. I now teach at, uh, at LIU, I'm, I'm now 15 or 16 years. Uh, I've been teaching courses at the clinical psychology program for about 10 or 11 years. I'm now part of the core faculty of that program. And a lot of the classes about assessments really highlight some of the issues that we see with learning disabilities, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorders, um, language disorders, and so forth. We also have a clinic here on campus that serves the community. Um, I am not the supervisor, I'm one of the supervisors, there are multiple, multiple supervisors, faculty members who supervise second year doctoral level students who provide services, among them is assessment. So I see a lot of these cases and Lisa, when you and I started to talk um, after the symposium we had together, when we started to talk about why children fall between the cracks and what happens when diagnosis happens later on in, in life, um, it really struck a chord with me because we see more and more individuals who come to us, and I saw it in my private practice as well, uh, who come to us later in life, right? Um, late high school, um, early college, even right before grad school to get evaluated, to have a psychoeducational evaluation because they suspect that they have some issues with learning. And we know that that's not a disorder that happens at age 18 or 20 or 22. So it really got me curious about what happened to these individuals that there was no um, attention put into whatever issues they might've had in order to conduct assessment or some sort of an evaluation early on in life. So we shouldn't be afraid to ask why or what if or make connections that aren't already established. We could do that now. We should always making those connections um, and asking questions because when you make the connections, that was, so the connections is a very interesting thing. And we see that in research as well. This is the connection between research and practice. This is where I'm going with that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I started my career as a practitioner, really, not as a researcher. Through the practice, making those kind of connections between what we saw um, and asking questions about what we saw, that was the connection to the research. And that's how those particular two articles that I mentioned before have come about because they drew the content and the questions from the practice itself. Right, so, so it's very, very important. Yeah, and it's very important to ask these type of questions, particularly when research comes from practice because these kind of questions help us to enlarge the scope of our knowledge and understanding. And then it weaves right back into the practice. Right? What we learn from the research informs how we practice. So I, I see that as a strong connection. And you know what, you are just the perfect person to really encapsulate that for us because sometimes when people hear research or journal articles, it can sound scary, intimidating. There's often big words we have to look up like three big words in one sentence. But really, you came and you come from the lens of we can make the research practical to be used and help our students. So much so that when you teach your psychology students, you're teaching them to pay attention to not just how to assess not just how to analyze the data, but how do we communicate recommendations that are practical 
practical, talking practicality, that are practical for the educators to understand so we could bridge that gap between what the child needs empirically and what they need functionally. Exactly. Exactly. Can you it's talk really, to us a bit about that? So, you know, one of the things that, that I was really fortunate about in my career is that my baccalaureate degree is both in psychology and education, right? I had an education degree so that I could teach while I was doing graduate work in psychology. That gave me an opportunity to spend some time in the classroom. And what I started to realize in conjunction with my psychology studies is that sometimes recommendations can really uh, derive from what we see psychologically with the child. And we can have these elaborate recommendations that are totally not practical in the classroom or that are totally not practical for a particular family because of limited resources that the family has. And therefore it's difficult for them to implement the recommendations when those go out of the education system, out of the public education system. So one of the things that, that I, and you're right, I do teach that to my, to my students and I'm so excited you're gonna be there to talk to them at the end of the semester about this. One of the things I try to um, talk to them about is think about recommendations that yes, they are evidence-based, right? Driven by the data, but also have to be practical because what's the point of coming up with a treatment plan or even a list of recommendations that nobody is going to be able to implement? Exactly. What do you see as some of the challenges in recommendations that, that come from the evaluator um, with your students? What, what are some of the challenges that you see? Well, to be quite honest with you, uh, I, I'd like to see more recommendations. I'd like to see more. Um, and as we were speaking earlier, I would like to see more of that multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary communication. See, if, if a psychologist in the building has a concern and speaks with me, I more or less can understand, take it because I've got my, I've got so many strategies and I've got that background knowledge to be able to apply the information and address that need in a way in which I'm comfortable with effectively. But we don't always have that background knowledge. We have surface. A lot of times educators have the surface knowledge, um, like ADHD, we know the buzzwords, or we know characteristic or the symptoms of, has difficulty sitting in a seat, calls out. We're working with the symptoms. So I find that without, really it's two parts to answer your question. I find one without knowing that background information it's hard to be able to really follow through on a recommendation but it's also been my experience that it seems just more validating oh yes uh, so and so tested this and these are some deficits i would like to see more recommendations given so i i think that that's really such a good point because i think that you know, psychologists have deep understanding of the disorders, the diagnostics, but possibly have surface knowledge of education, right? Yeah. Or yeah. of um, classroom management. And so we can come up and say, well, this particular child is exhibiting difficulties in processing sequential information, right? Which is something that we see often in ADHD. Um, and therefore, 
Um, they need assignments, so, 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 so they have difficulties in, in, in processing information. They need to process information in small chunks. Okay, well, now the psychologist really should have a conversation with the teacher, whether it's a general education teacher or the special education teacher. What does that mean? How do we take an assignment and break it into those chunks? Who works with a child on each segment of the assignment? How does the child learn to make the connection? We talked about connections before between stage one of the assignment and stage two and stage three, right? The psychologist knows where the deficit is in terms of information processing. The teacher yeah. will know how to help in the classroom to make that connection. Exactly. So to deepen that, because oftentimes that is a big practice. It's a practice to modify. We, we modify the content or we repeat or we have our visuals um, and we do put things in chunks, if you will. But what really deepens the importance of that and for best practice where the psychologist would come in is saying, this is where they're at. If they can explain a little bit of the why, or this is what we see, and this is the growth that we anticipate the child can have based on, then it, it makes more of um, a strategic output of the strategy. Because a lot of times we have strategies that'll fit the recommendations, but we're not understanding the real why that the psychologist understands. Does that make sense? So I think, that I, I think if, if, if I understand what you're saying is that teachers perhaps may not have a knowledge of the psychoneurological <clears throat> underlying mechanisms that will contribute, say, to a reading disorder or yes. attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or what we call dyslexia, right? Um, the different, different terminology that contribute to problems in information processing that then translate into academic difficulties. So, so look, you're right. I mean, one of the things that, that we think about, for example, in the learning disability um, is where is the deficit? Is it in the mechanism of learning? Let's say we're talking about reading. Is it in the mechanisms of reading in terms of phonemes or identifying uh, words, uh, sight words, etc., or is it in comprehension, right? Mm -hmm. Is the child able to identify words, but when they read a paragraph and you ask them about what is the main point or what is the main idea, they're lost because they don't put those words or sentences together. Sometimes it's the opposite. The child has difficulties in identifying words, but gets the idea of what they read, you know, from the context. So the comprehension is there. Just to say that a child has a reading disorder by itself is not enough. We need not to identify, enough. and we can do that. It's not enough. So we, we can identify through assessment what is the mechanism that contributes to these difficulties. Then together with the educator, we can come up with a strategy, right, on how to address, how to strengthen, how to improve that particular area. More than that, that's another thing that um, both, I think actually many professionals that work with children, probably with adults too, when we work with kids, I always tell my students, this is, you know, people don't come to you for evaluations because they don't have anything better to do on a Monday afternoon, right? <laughs> they come to you because they have issues. We tend to focus on that which does not work. But one of the things that we also should do in evaluations is also to identify areas of competency, areas of strengths, because very often those areas of strength can help the child to compensate for that which needs improvement. Some skills that work for them in one area 
can be developed and can be modified or generalized to help them succeed in another area that, that they're struggling with. Do you see that in the classroom too, that, that when there's a child who has difficulties, there's more focus on, the, on what doesn't work rather than on what does work? I think there's a mix. I think people really find solace and peace in what does work. So they wanna capitalize on that and keep on moving forward. I really do think that it comes from the fact of really, we're more of the how, but not the why. But really mm -hmm. together, we need to put the how and the why together to really yeah. get best practices for students so they don't fall be between the, the, the cracks rather. And before I really begin so many of my, my workshops, especially when I'm talking about ADHD, I say, okay, by a raise of hands, who's heard of ADHD? So now we know everybody raises their hand. Then I ask, tell me, what do you know about it? And what do we get? Nine out of 10 times, nine and a half out of 10 times, we get people saying what the symptoms are, but they're not digging deeper. So now it's, it's just like pull, putting on a bandaid and covering it up, but not putting the medicine on. It'll always be there. And so I think that's the discord. And I believe that your students are incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have you because I've worked with many psychologists who have said to me, I think you know more about executive functioning and self-regulation than I do because my schooling has focused on assessment, data, and interpretation. And so I really think that there needs to be professional development for how to communicate resources and strategies that work in the classroom for the psychologists, for the educators to have professional development on the why all these uh, challenges are impeding students in their lives. And then wouldn't it be great if there was a professional development for psychologists and educators together? Ah. Oh yes, that is, that is a dream that right. I would have uh, educators, uh, psychologists, other service providers yes. that can really understand how the why informs the how, right? Yes. Um, and how the how, if you will, um, really touches a lot of areas of functioning. Yes. So we need a lot of professionals. Look, it's not realistic, as much as we all love our work, it's not realistic to expect that everybody will be an expert in everything. We, it's just not realistic. Indeed. That's why we need this model of interdisciplinary. So professionals can learn from one another. Um, and that's really important. And it's not that we expect the educator to become an expert in psychology and the psychologist to become an expert teacher, okay. but we expect there to be some understanding, right, of yeah. what the child needs in different settings and how each professional can contribute to help the child via conversation with the other professionals, via collaboration with the other professionals. Yes, and having a real working knowledge of what's going to work in realistic terms for each domain, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think I think that's I think we stumbled on something here, really to have that. And and you know what, Orly, you already bridged that gap by inviting me in as the eyes of an educator. 
right? And you're my students you're... are very excited. My students are very excited about that because that is something that um, they do they do struggle with. You know, they, they, they've gotten through the statistics part of it. They've gotten through the data analysis. They've gotten even through the functionality piece of what does that mean in terms of functioning. Um, the issue of recommendation always remains a challenge because, okay, I understand this child. I understand the data in terms of how the data um, uh, explain what's going on with this kid. Now, what do I do? Right. Right. That's always the step. Now, what do I do? And where do we, how do we navigate that line between giving recommendations without becoming educators ourselves? Right. Because a lot of my students say, okay, but I'm not a teacher. Students that really succeed in this are students that have some background in teaching. I've had students in the past that were teachers and they always do better with that part because like you, they come from the classroom. They understand the practicality yeah. of it. Yeah. And my students sometimes will get frustrated and say, okay, but I'm not a teacher. I'm not going to an education program. I'm going to a psychology program. Right. So that is why that kind of collaboration is so important to give recommendations that will make sense in the real world while they are informed by the evidence, by the data from the assessment. Exactly. And I think that once we, no matter what role we have, be like, oh, I don't know, can I handle it? Is, is, am I gonna understand it? Do I have time for it? I think if we take a step back, take a breath and remember that if we hold true to why we began in the field we began, it's about who we service. And when we're comfortable with that, it's okay to say, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. And I think it's right. also okay to say, slow down. You're using big words, tell me, what does it mean? And then give your input too for the other side to understand. And when both Absolutely. are open, that collaboration occurs. Now we've got a pretty strong educational team. Exactly. And that really is the model that we should strive for, um, particularly when we are working with children who have challenges, who have disabilities, children who have challenges and have not been diagnosed with disability because as you say, they're falling between the cracks. Well, how, how is that happening? How do we have a neuro, neurodevelopmental disorder that is being diagnosed at age 25? How did that happen? Well, it happened, well, it happened for a lot of reasons. I mean, the, 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 there's, it's a complicated issue. But part of the reason that it's happening is because there weren't, there was not enough conversation among different professionals to help whoever is working with this child directly to identify that this child in fact has problems, has challenges, and therefore perhaps an evaluation is in order. And that's, yeah. that's a real issue. That's a real issue. Look, when we have children in the, in the classroom, who are struggling with, with education. Okay, so those are being identified, right? There are some markers that, that help us to just say, okay, this child has difficulties, let's see what's going on. The problem is when we have children who perform at the average level. Yeah. But yeah. just because yeah. the child performs at the average level does not yeah. mean that he or she does not have challenges, right? Because potentially they should be performing at a much higher level. Yeah. Fortunately, the diagnostic, both the legal classification and the diagnostic um, criteria have changed in this current century um, with good and bad results. The good results are that 
more children will be eligible for services. And the bad results are that those who perform at the average level, even though potentially they should perform at much better level, at much higher level, fall in between the cracks. And they're smart enough to handle school, the elementary school, middle school, even high school. But then they go to college and the material is much harder. And all of a sudden you have to rely a lot more on your own independent study skills mm-hmm. and on your own time management. Time management. And all of a sudden you're not doing well. And what happened? What happened between high school and college that all of a sudden you're not doing well? And then you come to a clinic like ours and you get an assessment and you say, you're presenting as if you have a learning disability. Right. Where, where did that manifest itself in your earlier educational career? And then when we do a reflective sort of clinical interview, we're beginning to see, yes, there were difficulties here and there, but you know, I did okay, so nobody worried about it. I wonder how many of these individuals that we're talking about now drop out or quit because they don't know where to go for help. Right. And they get frustrated. Yeah. Um, they know they can do better. They want to do better, um, but they don't. Often they'll hear what we think is a motivating um, statement, such as, oh, you can do so much better. Okay. Or um, you're not really studying or you're not really achieving up to your potential. You have so much potential. Okay, but I'm not able to achieve this potential. You're telling me I can do better and I don't know how to, I want to do better, but I don't know how to do better. You know, and when we look at, at the data, they said, this is really um, very interesting. I was, I was reviewing some statistics um, before we, we, we met today. And we know that learning disabilities probably are diagnosed between five and 15% of children in the United States. It's a big range, but between five and 15%. And ADHD probably about five, I've seen research that shows even as much as 14%. That's in childhood. But then to take a look at it, there are stats for adulthood as well. And specifically, I even wrote it down so I won't forget. So um, in adulthood, we see about 4% of adults that are diagnosed with learning disability. Yep. Now, learning disability does not disappear. If they're diagnosed 4% of adulthood, that means that those are the adults that actually were diagnosed first in adulthood. Right. What happened to them when they were kids? ADHD is the same thing. ADHD, we used to think that ADHD is a childhood disorder that somehow corrects itself by the time the child gets to age 18. Miraculously, right? Mm-hmm. It miraculously disappears. We know that that's not true. We know that um, anywhere between third and two thirds of children with ADHD symptomatology will carry that symptomatology, will carry those difficulties into adulthood. But in addition to that, data are telling us, let me just quote this correctly, 2.5% of adults are diagnosed with ADHD. These are not the adults who continue to manifest ADHD from childhood. Right. These are the adults who are diagnosed in adulthood. They were undiagnosed as children. They found it within themselves, they feel like they could do better. Maybe they were feeling frustrated, but clearly they weren't meeting their goals. So now this 2.5% of adults are getting diagnosed, which really satisfies also one of those questions that oftentimes people ask, why, why is it on the rise? Why is it getting, I feel like ADHD, there's just more people being diagnosed now. And that's one of those reasons. People are setting goals, not meeting them and seeking help. Exactly. 
So what, exactly. what would a recommendation at this point? There's an adult, they now have um, been diagnosed with a learning disability. This is quite a broad question, but take it in any direction you like. What type of recommendation might be helpful for uh, a newly diagnosed individual? That is a really, really good question. Obviously, it depends on the type of the diagnosis. It depends on the goals of that individual and their life circumstances, right? One of the big things in, in, diag in diagnostic assessment is that we have to understand that no matter what the data are telling us, and you can have data from multiple assessments, you can give you know, multiple different batteries to an individual, and the data are all going to show you that this individual has, say, uh, difficulties in reading. Unless that individual needs reading for their daily life, and this problem in reading is interfering with their daily life, the diagnosis is really meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. So it really doesn't matter. However, if that individual, for example, is seeking higher education or is seeking professional development or um, has a career that relies a lot on taking information through reading, that matters quite a, big, quite a great deal. So then the recommendations would be dictated by what are the goals of this individual and how these difficulties interfere with the goals. We, again, depending on what is the nature of the reading um, disability or reading disorder, we would recommend different things. Um, if it's a question of um, slow reading, for example, um, and the individual, this is what we see a lot, you know, they come to us for uh, standardized testing and to qualify for accommodation standardized testing. If it's a question of slow reading, maybe we would recommend extra time on a standardized testing like the MCAT or the LSAT. Um, if it's a question of um, difficulties in scanning or uh, difficulties in sight word, there are all kinds of interventions that can improve reading and sight words, which you probably are more familiar with than I would be. So it really depends on what it is that this individual is experiencing in their daily life. The data by themselves don't tell us anything unless they're connected to the real circumstances of the real life of this individual. So the data can also help us to really define the areas of difficulty. So an individual might realize, you know, it's really hard for me to understand what I'm reading, but it might be more than that. And so if it's more than that, that data can really allow us the information to say, you know, let's, let's focus on let's, the sight words or let's focus on this area so we, get, get, so we can build on that bigger picture. So that's exactly. even knowing the specific areas that, exactly. okay, yeah, so we get it. And now you have this big report, you have the diagnosis. How is this, in, in your opinion, how should this information be disseminated to the person who has been tested? So that is really um, a great question. I just participated in a webinar on Friday, I think, exactly speaking about this, the APA um, assessment division um, is exactly thinking about these issues right now as we speak, Lisa. This is so interesting that you raised this, this question. So one of the things that, that we know is helpful, it's not enough to give this report that often spans 20 pages with mm -hmm. lots of numbers and a lot of jargon often. It's not enough to give this to the person and say, here, here are your report, here are your results, recommendations are on page 22. Right. Thank you very much. We're done. 
there has to be a conversation. The conversation is what we call the feedback session, is more than just giving the results. The feedback session is a conversation. It's a conversation between the evaluator and the client. Of course, depending on the age of the client with a child, depending on the age of the child, depending on the developmental level of the child, we would uh, tailor the conversation differently. But generally speaking, the idea is to explain to the client what the data are, what the data suggests in terms of functionality. Functionality is a big word in my classes. My students make Good. fun of me with, with that word. Um, you I know, got you back on functionality. <laughs> Absolutely, because that's what we need. We that's need the function. What does it mean? Give right. me practical. Exactly. I, I always say, what does it mean for the child? And then they imitate it. So what does it mean for the child? So how, <laughs> what is, what, how does that manifest itself? So the conversation yeah. with the client has to be, these are what the data suggest. Does that resonate with you? Is that something that you actually experience in your uh, daily life? And then the client perhaps will validate that and will say, you know, that's not exactly my experience. And then you start thinking, okay, how do I interpret the data? Uh, perhaps from a different perspective. The data are the data, the numbers don't lie, right? The numbers are the numbers. However, the interpretation always has to be done in the context. So it's really important to get the client's um, uh, feedback. The client herself or himself will give feedback on how did they experience this. It's important to get feedback about what is the reality. If there is a diagnosis, particularly when we're talking about um, older adults, not older adults, but, but adults, like young adults, not, not children, how do they respond to this diagnosis? Is the diagnosis, um, I have seen people who became so threatened by diagnosis that they started crying in session. Um, they, what does it mean that I am crazy? Does it mean that I am, I had a client years ago who said to me, but I'm not retarded. Well, then I had to spend some time explaining that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder has nothing to do with intellectual disability. Uh, because the, the, the client just felt very threatened. I also had clients who had exactly the opposite reaction. Oh, thank God, I finally know what's wrong with me. Right. I'm not stupid. It's not right. that I'm stupid. It's there is something in my information processing mechanism yeah. that is not working well. And now yeah. I know what it is. I can do and they always that. knew it was something, but now they know what it was. That's huge. It could exactly. be life changing. It really is. So it's really important. Part of disseminating that information is exactly that. It's tapping into what is the reaction to the, yes. to the information um, because that will also help to motivate the clients to take those next steps uh, in terms of recommendations. And, you know, even with children, we see that because the kid is not going to be the one who implements the recommendations, right? The parents will share the information with the school and then there will be the educators and then there will be the social worker at the school and, you know, whoever are the service providers. We need to help the parents feel motivated to move to that level yeah. so that they can share this information with the school um, for these recommendations to actually take place. And we can only do that if we get information during the feedback session. What is their response to the assessment results? I love the way you gave us a brief little, well, how does that make you feel? Really, coming across as this is information to be shared, not given. It's exactly. to be shared. And I, I can't tell you how many times clients come to me and they show me these reports. 
That's okay. Did you talk with the doctor? No, pretty much I got the report. Or it was brief, but here it is. Looking for me to go through. And sometimes there really is good information. There are some paragraphs about the working memory and, and how it affects and the deficits and the strengths, but they don't even know what working memory is. And so then we end up having that conversation, but it, I should be more of the reinforcer. And if they have any more other questions, then come to me. But my belief is that they should, they should have this initial conversation that's meaningful with the evaluator. Absolutely. And, and then come, and then we could talk about, okay, well, this is what I see. What do you know? What do you understand? And let's make an action plan. Exactly. So, exactly. That, that model of collaboration sees the client, um, whether it's a child and the, and the child's family, so it's the client system or the, or the young adult, but it sees the client as part of the interdisciplinary team. Buy-in. Buy-in from everybody. That's what it is. Buy-in of, okay, I can understand this new information. It's like when your child has an allergy. Okay, you could just eliminate all ingredients or you can understand a little bit more. Or you learn to make other recipes. You know, exactly. you, you educate yourself. It's buying into this is something serious. Let's learn about it. And now... Let's, I love that, the feedback session. Is this a movement that's starting to get some momentum? So yes, so actually it turns out that that movement started quite a while ago, apparently in the 1990s, which I was not really aware of until more recently. Um, there is something that's called the interactive assessment or the therapeutic interactive assessment or the therapeutic collaborative assessment. There are a lot of words for that, but there are, um, quite a lot, there's, there are quite a lot of data about the efficacy of this type of interactive type of assessment that sees the client as an active contributor to the entire process. So we see a lot more of that. We see that in the way that we educate our students. We see that uh, shift in the way that practitioners and psychologists practice. It's very powerful. You know something? I, I, really, I feel like we're just uncovering more and more during this podcast. Um, as, as you say, the client as an active contributor, what are your thoughts on the school psychologist directly sharing their findings with students? Whether it be upper elementary, but brought to them on their level, as well as secondary. What are your thoughts on that? So I think that from the practice, we have to think about it from the legal point of view as well as from the practical point of view, correct? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, we have to think about what are the parents willing to have the child find out mm -hmm. from sure. the assessment. But if we assume for a second that the parent, and we also have to think about do the parents want to be present in that type of conversation yes. with school psychologists mm -hmm. or not, but putting that part aside, you know, the legal part of it, it's very important to share feedback with children. Um, and the school psychologist should find time to, even if it's a young child, because even if it's a young child that you're not going to obviously get into the technical aspects of it, it's okay to say something like, you know how when we started working together, you told me that it's really um, difficult for you to do math and you just don't understand that and the numbers don't make any sense to you. So, you know, I did find out when we worked together um, 
And then what it is that I found out, I really, they find out that it's really difficult. It looks like it's really difficult for you to tell the difference between the plus sign and the multiplication sign, for example. It's yeah. really difficult for you to put the numbers in a column to do long division or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I can see that. And, and, and I can see that in the, and there are ways to help you with that. It yeah. doesn't have to be more than that, depending on the, on the edge of the chart. Yeah. It doesn't have to be more than that. Yeah. From the way to know. They need to know and they want to know. And I think from what I've seen and what I know about children, I think that will eliminate a little bit of the comparing themselves to others of they're better and they're smarter than me because I can't. I don't know, I don't know why I can't, but I know I can't, which goes directly into their self-concept. And then it explodes into them being someone they're not, who does not believe in themselves and who doesn't persevere through those challenges because exactly. of that, that little component. And oftentimes, school psychologists are calling home, talking about their results, and then sending home the, the report. I think that might be a really good time to say, do you want to come in? And I can explain a little bit more with you and your child. Exactly. exactly. And I think it's really important to have that kind of follow-up with the parents, uh, whoever, the guardian of the child and the child. And in my child assessment class, which is a course that I teach every spring semester, we actually talk about how to provide feedback to children and their families of different ages. Um, how do you do that? How, what do you do? What, what do you communicate? Sometimes the feedback can be, um, you know how we did this and this task and this and this thing, and I asked you to do the math and I asked you to do the reading and I said words to you and you had to come back and you had to repeat that to me. I really appreciated how hard you worked with me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's feedback too. How, yeah, how, how was that for you? Oh, it was so frustrating. I was so frustrated with that. I could see that you were frustrated, but I really appreciate how much you work, how, how hard you worked. And, and together we can come up with, with some information about this. That's the kind of feedback that can be given to a younger child. But yeah. children need to know that when we meet with them and we do all this evaluation, um, we relate to them. Right? Yeah. How does that relate to them? All they know is they're going into another room. Hopefully, they'll do okay on whatever right. this is. And they right. go back to their room and that's it. Right. And they have no idea what, what, what it was for, what it was about. Um, it's very, right. it, it can be scary. It can be threatening. And it just often will just contribute to this sense of I'm different. And I don't know why I'm different, but I know that I know that I'm different. But when we provide that kind of feedback and, and an explanation on any level that the child is able to understand, depending on their developmental level, depending on their age, it is so empowering for a child. So empowering. empowering. Absolutely empowering. Yeah. Yes. Giving them the information of the why is just as important as educators and service providers understanding Absolutely. the why. So then they are more open and able to understand the how. How do I get to where I want to be? Exactly. That's tremendous. Exactly. It's tremendous. I really so, hope our listeners are taking notes because we are <laughs> hitting on some very important paradigm shifts as things are really practiced right now on a regular basis. So we're talking about why 
children with learning disabilities fall between the cracks. How recommendations can be delivered to educators and educators voicing their input and voicing their concern to psychologists and the whole educational team, how that can look like for a child who struggles. We're talking about clients who are older, upper high school or beginning college or even graduate school. We're talking about where they're not reaching their goals, not understanding why, finally seeking the appropriate help, getting answers. How do they receive those recommendations? How do they use them in their lives? And finally, we're also talking about feedback sessions and how do we deliver the information, the data to the client, to the child, to the parent and the professionals working with this child. Having, and you know what it all falls down to? Having a working knowledge of information, but even more having a collaborative conversation that is focused to provide both the why and the how for exactly. everybody. We all exactly. need the why and the how. Exactly, exactly. And that is the part that will ultimately motivate, whether it's the parents taking care of their child or the, or the individual for themselves, that will motivate the person to move on to the next step, which is to really implement some of these recommendations, learning new strategies, learning new skills, uh, learning to compensate for certain areas by highlighting what they're good at. Because again, remember those, those individuals come to us, the psychologists, because they have a problem. And often the focus is on the problem and not on areas of competencies. So the area of competencies sort of like yeah. get lost there. Um, and that, that detract from, first of all, from the real picture of who this person is. It detracts right. from success in the future because we're not taking advantage of those areas of competencies. And it contributes to feeling of helplessness, of hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's really an important piece of evaluating the strength as well as those areas that require improvement as well as those challenges. I think we really have an episode here where people should listen more than once. And I think you and I need to continue with our collaboration as well. Is there any piece of advice before we go that you might give to whether it be you know, you have so much to give, whether it be to students in psychology now, or whether it be to educators and service providers within schools, or even parents, what would you tell these people in need so our children with learning disabilities don't fall between the cracks? So I would say to parents and educators, pay attention. Just because the child is doing okay doesn't mean that they don't have problems. So pay attention to the pattern of behavior, pay attention to the pattern of achievement, pay attention to the pattern of thinking uh, in order to identify potential difficulties so that we don't identify them 20 years later. That's what I would say to, provider, to providers, teachers, and parents. To my students and all other students in assessment classes, I would say, don't forget there's a real person behind these numbers. Uh, we get so hung up on the statistical analysis. We get so busy with the accuracy and the standardization of the 
of, of, of delivering the, the assessment and the standardization of scoring it. But let's not forget these numbers represent a real person. And that's the important piece. That's a lot of heart right there. And there's a lot of heart that goes behind so much of your diligence and your commitment to really helping individuals. And I mean individuals because you are helping parents, children, future psychologists, educators and service providers. I can't thank you enough for taking out the time to really speak with our listeners and enrich them with such knowledge and experience that you have, I, I'm indebted to you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me um, to this podcast. And thank you for sharing from your incredible wealth of skills and having that conversation um, to raise awareness for these issues. So I really hope that we can continue the conversation and that we can continue to collaborate. I see a great opportunity here um, to really bring in expertise from different fields in order to better serve those children, which is really why we got into these business in the first place, right? Absolutely. Yes, I wanna keep collaborating and making that difference with you too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast, where school leaders, educators, and parents meet on behalf of children who struggle with learning. To bring workshops to your school or organization, contact Child Behavior Consulting and get started with resources available at childbehaviorconsulting.com, Amazon, and teacherspayteachers.com for ready-to-use resources and children's books. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to review, subscribe, share, and give us a shout out on social media.